Last week we heard of Joseph's rise to power after God gave him the correct interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. This week we've seen those dreams fulfilled and a famine has spread over the land which is impacting Jacob and his family all the way in the land of Canaan. So Jacob hears of the provisions stored up in Egypt and he urges his sons to make the journey there to secure food for the family. And all of this makes perfect sense. But who he sends reveals a lot about where Jacob's heart is. It says in verse 4, But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. If you remember back at the beginning of the series, we spent some time looking at Jacob's very complicated family tree. And we saw that because Jacob loved his wife Rachel more than his wife Leah, and because Rachel had great difficulties having kids, Joseph and Benjamin were treated differently than their other brothers. This favoritism hurt the unity of jo jo Jacob's family. And with Joseph's death, Benjamin has replaced Joseph as the child he cares for the most. Jacob refuses to send Benjamin with his brothers. And one commentator noted that this might also indicate that in the decades that have passed since Joseph disappeared, Jacob might have grown suspicious over what really happened to Joseph. So he doesn't want to take any chances with Rachel's only other living son. But how Jacob speaks to his sons at the end of today's passage brings that preference for Benjamin and Joseph to light in a really painful way. Because at the end of the text today, Joseph's sons tell him that Simeon was kept in custody back in Egypt and that in order to get him back, they're going to need to bring Benjamin with them to Egypt. And despite Reuben offering his two sons as a promise that they'll bring Simeon and Benjamin back, Jacob says, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. Jacob is standing before 10 of his children and yet he speaks of Benjamin as the only child he has left. Benjamin has become his new all in all since Joseph disappeared. And as we look at where Jacob finds himself at both the beginning and the end of today's text, we see a man struggling with what it means to fully trust God. We see a man who can't trust God with Benjamin's life because of what happened to Joseph. Now, from our perspective, we're seeing God slowly unfold a series of events that are going to lead to reconciliation and restoration. We're seeing the first step God is orchestrating to reunite Jacob with the son he believes is gone forever. But Jacob doesn't know that yet. Jacob doesn't even know what happened to Joseph. And so we see an older man who believes in God's sovereignty and yet can't fully trust him. And this is powerful when we stop and think back on Jacob's life. Think for a second about the encounters Jacob has had with God over the years. As a younger man, he had a vision of a ladder with angels descending and ascending from it and heard God promise him land and descendants. He's already experienced the blessings of a fruitful flock under his uncle Laban. He's wrestled with God and received a blessing on the night before coming back to Canaan. And yet here he is in his old age and he's struggling to trust God with his child. And in clinging to Benjamin and hearing his words, you would bring my gray hairs down to Shoal. We hear the words of a man who believes losing Benjamin would be the same as losing his own life. It's powerful to see a man who's had so many intimate encounters with God continue to struggle with trusting him. By clinging to Benjamin, Jacob is trying to control further hardships to prevent future suffering. 
And in doing so, he's doubting God's ability to meet him in his life experience. It seems like Jacob has not fully reconciled his relationship with God since the loss of Joseph. Rather than wrestling with God in his sorrows, Jacob has just shifted his energy and hopes to another son. He's placed all of his joy in another person that can be taken away from him. So he's trying to do all he can to control the situation. And that's a tough place to be because we never have control over our situations. We can't prevent suffering. Anyone that's ever been in a close friendship or had children or gotten married knows that despite our best efforts, suffering finds us. And no time more than our present season. We can't really control what happens in our lives or in the lives of those people we love. And faced with that truth, we're invited to trust that because God is in control and he's good, we can trust him with everything. I was talking to one of our Grace Point couples last week and one of our sisters shared a deep struggle and the wrestling she did with God after her child was born with some health issues. In the moment of welcoming her child into the world, she had to face the reality that God could take her child away from her at any moment. It was scary, it was overwhelming. And yet, as she pressed into her relationship with God in prayer and in scripture and in community, she saw more clearly that God loved her and her child more than she ever could. She had to confront whether or not she believed God really was good and loving and would use every experience for her good and for his glory. Now, I'm sure she would say today that she's not fully arrived yet in her ongoing conversation with God, but she's walking with him and seeing him show her in countless ways that he is for her and for her child. How has this pandemic revealed the similarities between your heart and Jacob's? Jacob's son is more important to him than anyone else, even his 10 other children, and he can't see that it's hurting his family and his relationship with God. What things do we cling to that God is inviting us in this season to finally trust him with? This morning, God is inviting us to run to him and to trust him to be the king that gives us security and unshakable meaning to know that he loves us and those whom we love better than we ever could. So the first person we see in this passage is Jacob. And with him, we see a man who's struggling to fully surrender to God's plans, to fully trust in his goodness. The next individuals we're going to look at are Joseph's brothers. 20 years have passed since they sold Joseph into slavery. And though they've continued to live their lives and have had children of their own, we see in our text that nothing allows them to truly escape their past. As the brothers come before Joseph to request food for their families, Joseph recognizes them and immediately accuses them of being spies. And their initial response is revealing. They say in verse 11, we are honest men. These brothers that have kept alive from their father for two decades respond readily and quickly with a bold statement that they're honest. And in this response, we see a remarkable thing about people. We're so good at compartmentalizing our behavior and therefore thinking so much better of ourselves than we should. We justify our actions. We make excuses for what we say and do. And we rarely take full responsibility for the things we do that are wrong. Don't we do that all the time? I was listening to a Brian Loritz sermon two weeks ago, and he was talking about conflict in relationships. And he said something great. He said, I'm sorry you heard it that way is not an apology. 
how often do our apologies sound more like that than admitting we're wrong and asking for forgiveness? It's really hard for us to admit our faults, just that it's hard for Joseph's brothers to be honest about themselves. Instead, they see their actions towards Joseph as an isolated incident, instead of prescriptive of their heart condition. And we too often make excuses for our behavior rather than admitting our actions reveal the truth about our hearts and minds. And that's why it's so dangerous when we sit with our guilt for a long period of time without acknowledging it. Joseph's brothers have managed to hide their guilt into a different chamber of their heart, making their sins the exception to their otherwise perfect righteous lives rather than the rule. And are we not often like these brothers in our daily lives? We justify our behaviors by saying, well, everyone else does the same thing. It's okay if I do it. Or we think all the things we do right can cover over the things we know we've done wrong in such a way that those things don't actually need to be addressed or even acknowledged. And when we think this way, we slowly begin to justify our actions and minimize their effects, often at the cost of our friendships and our relationships and our own peace of mind. And even the peace we think we have is fragile and taken away from us so easily. Sometimes all we need is someone to mention the issue we're dealing with, even if they don't even know that we are, and immediately we're triggered. Our guilt resurfaces and we feel like we've been found out. We see that happen in this passage as things unfold for the brothers. You see, as Joseph continues to question them, they come closer and closer to being confronted by the truth of their actions. Joseph continues to press them about their desire to spy on the land. And as he does, they reveal more of their past. In verse 13, they say, We, your servants, are twelve brothers. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Joseph's brothers have moved from declaring themselves honest men to revealing out loud that one of their brothers is no more. And what a euphemism. They didn't say he was killed or sold into slavery. They move closer towards the truth while still not admitting their guilt. And again, aren't we so much like them? We struggle to be honest and take full responsibility for our actions. We dance around what we do. We try to lighten our complicity. What are some ways you avoid taking ownership over what you've done or haven't done? I know I'm often very quick to make excuses when I don't do what I've promised Courtney. From calling a doctor to schedule an appointment to helping with something in the house, I'll blame the craziness of the day or things that came up rather than immediately taking responsibility and owning my behavior. But then Joseph gives them grain only if they'll allow him to keep their brother Simeon in custody and only if they'll bring back his younger brother Benjamin for him to see with his own eyes. And as they're faced with this difficult predicament, their guilt fully resurfaces. Joseph's demands are so powerfully mirroring what they did to him years ago, selling him into slavery for money, that they're forced to confront the guilt they've been suppressing for all these years. Not knowing that Joseph can understand what they're saying to one another, the brothers wrestle with their guilt and their belief that the turn of events in their life is a form of punishment for what they did to him. Look at what they say. In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That's why this has come upon us. And Reuben answers, right? Didn't I tell you, but you did not listen. So there comes a reckoning for his blood. My friend Rudy 
noted that this verse harkens back to the covenant that God makes with Noah and the price that has to be paid for a life being taken. God says in, in earlier in Genesis, and for your lifeblood I require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. They know they've committed a grave sin, and they're finally starting to admit it. And as the brothers share this with one another, we see that despite their lives going on for 20 years, their guilt remains. Martin Scorsese's latest film, The Irishman, follows a Philly native, Frank Sheeran, over the course of his life. And the film's tagline is, time changes nothing. That's powerful. No matter how much time passes, we can't escape the knowledge of our guilt. For Joseph's brothers, yeah, it might have happened a long time ago. Yeah, maybe they're the only ones that really know what happened, but they're still guilty. And their current circumstances have brought those feelings of guilt to the surface. And even more significant, they know that more than their brother, they're guilty in the eyes of God. Again, it's interesting that in verse 28, when they find the money returned in their sacks, they attribute it to God. What is this that God has done to us? They know that they're guilty and that God would be right to punish them for their sins. And what we see in this text is what Professor Wilfred McClay has called the strange persistence of guilt. The truth remains that even if we've not sold our brothers into slavery, don't we all struggle with feelings of guilt? And we all struggle to be freed from those feelings. McClay wrote this amazing essay with the same name for this online journal called the Hedgehog Review. And he writes that the philosopher Nietzsche was confident that with God dead, all would indeed be permitted. Nietzsche believed that once our culture moved beyond believing in God, we would also move beyond the experience of guilt, which he believed was a feeling that we had only because we walked around believing there was a God who punished sin. But interestingly, despite our culture rejecting the God of the Bible, we've not seen a reduction in the experience of guilt. In fact, the feeling of guilt has only increased in strength since Nietzsche wrote that argument over a hundred years ago. And so the question for us is why? And what does McClay argue? He says, in a world in which human agency becomes ever more powerful and effective, the range of our potential moral responsibility and therefore our guilt steadily expands. Power entails responsibility and responsibility leads to guilt. I can see pictures of a starving child in a remote corner of the world on my TV and know for a fact that I could travel to that faraway place and relieve that child's suffering if I cared to. I don't do it, but I know I could. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it could never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me blameless. You see what he's saying? We know we're guilty by looking at what we do and what we fail to do every day of our lives. And even if we deny God, we can't deny the fact that God made us for him and made us moral beings who know that there's a true right and a true wrong and that we often choose to do the wrong things. So whether you're a Christian or not this morning, we're constantly confronted with feelings of guilt. And again, this season, 
has been no exception. We feel guilty when we think of people struggling to get food while we sit down to a hot meal. We feel guilty when we treat our spouses or our children harshly knowing they don't deserve it. We might struggle with feelings of guilt if we're working when we see people close to us struggling to find a job. We feel guilty for wasting our money or our time on the wrong things or for consistently giving in to temptations despite the emptiness we feel every single time that we do. Sometimes our guilt comes from really recognizing that we've done something wrong, something that we deserve to be punished for. And other times we experience guilt because we know that we're not good enough to have received the blessings we have in our lives. We know we're not being treated as we ought to be treated and we're waiting to be found out. And with that, we see the second obstacle presented to us this morning. If the first problem is Jacob and our inability to truly trust God and see him as the greatest good, then the second problem is the brother's guilt. And like them, we struggle with guilt and are unable to get rid of it. What feelings of guilt are holding you down in this season? What's weighing on you that you can't seem to cast off? Guilt is a problem, and no matter what we do, we never are able to shake it off. And that brings us to the last problem. The last person our text confronts us with is Joseph and his problem. You see, though Joseph desires to let go of the past and move on, the past is not yet done with him. In last week's passage, we saw Joseph have two children in Egypt, and he named his firstborn Manasseh. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh for, he said, God has made me forget all of my hardships in all of my father's house. The name Manasseh comes from the Hebrew verb to forget. And one commentator noted that by Joseph naming him in this way, it isn't hard to see that he's seeking to forget his past hurts and his entire father's household. For Joseph, healing looks like forgetting the past and moving on with his life. And isn't this one of the most common ways we deal with past hurts? We do everything we can to forget about them. And yet, despite our best efforts, we're never really able to forget. Think about that dynamic in our closest relationships. We're hurt by something that someone has said or done to us in the past. And we think, we even say, ah, we moved on. And then we often find ourselves bringing that same thing up in later arguments, even when it's completely irrelevant to what we're talking about. We can't let it go. Running away doesn't work. And though we want to try and forget about the brokenness in our relationships and move on, God doesn't want us to forget. He wants to deal with that brokenness and he wants to heal it. As Joseph is confronted with his brothers, we have to remember he's not seen or heard from them in 20 years. And as one commentator noted, he hasn't sought after them either. With his power and his position, Joseph could have sent word and men to report on the whereabouts, the well-being of his family, but he hasn't. And though he recognizes them immediately, he wants to know if his brothers have grown or changed at all in the years since he's last seen them. Are these the same jealous and cold-hearted men who sold him into slavery for some money? Or have they learned and grown from their past choices? So Joseph first proposes to send one of his brothers back to retrieve Benjamin while the rest of them remain in prison. But then after three days, he changes his mind. He changes the plan, right? And he sends them all back while only keeping Simeon behind. 
He also has the money that they brought to pay for the grain packed in their bags without them knowing. And in doing so, Joseph is testing his brothers to see what they'll do. One commentator noted, by keeping Simeon, he gives them the chance to abandon one of their brothers to prison and slavery as they previously did to him. And by asking for Benjamin, Joseph wants to make sure his biological brother is okay. Joseph probably feared that Benjamin was being treated just like he was treated when he was still at home. Maybe they sold Benjamin into slavery too. And the only way for him to know for sure is to see him in the flesh alive and well. So with his brothers, will they take the money? Will they run? Will they leave Simeon high and dry? Will they return with Joseph's brother and bring the money back that they religiously had brought with them to pay? Our passage leaves us without an answer. But Joseph's test is significant. You see, we have all the power to forgive one another when we've been wronged. Forgiveness is something that, with God's grace and help, we can, be doing, we can do on our own. It can take place without anybody even knowing. It's an internal thing that can happen without anyone seeing it. But reconciliation is different. Unlike forgiveness, reconciliation requires two parties to come together. And there needs to be an asking and an accepting of the forgiveness offered. Both parties need to own their contributions to the problem. Joseph has not yet forgiven his brothers nor reconciled with them, but his test is gonna reveal if reconciliation is even possible. And our text shows us at least one piece of evidence that it might be, because his brothers are beginning to recognize their guilt. And if they recognize their guilt, then they can bring that to him in order to experience forgiveness and be reconciled to him. But our text ends before we know what happens. And so we're left with a third problem. How can we be reconciled to those who've hurt us? So this morning we have three struggles. The struggle to trust God in his plans and provision. The struggle to be freed from guilt. And the struggle to forgive and reconcile with others. Which one of these are you struggling the most with in this season? Maybe you're struggling with all three. And if you are, don't be discouraged because it's impossible in our own strength to solve these problems. We need one greater than ourselves to do what we're unable to do. And if you're a Christian, you already have the greater one living inside of you. This season may be revealing how much you struggle to trust God with the things you love and value the most. You may be realizing that even though you identify as a Christian, your deepest hopes and joys may not come from your relationship with God. It's been hard to trust God in his plans. Well, there's good news. Because though we struggle and will continue to struggle with complete and total trust in God's plans, Jesus willingly obeyed God and trusted him even when his father's plans led him to his death. Even though Jesus experienced profound suffering, even though he was described by the prophet Isaiah as a man of sorrows, he followed God wherever he was led. When the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights with food and with power and with protection, Jesus resisted the devil every time, even though he was lonely and tired and starving, because he knew God's plans and God's word were better than any pleasure that was being offered to him. Even when one of his best friends said he didn't need to go to the cross, he resisted going along with Peter and rebuked him for speaking more like Satan than like God. 
And even when Jesus was so scared and overwhelmed with sorrow about his impending death, so much so that he was sweating drops of blood, he prayed, not my will be done, but yours. Though we daily struggle to trust in God's plans, though we daily struggle to give him our entire lives and believe his ways are always good, Jesus trusted God until the very end so that even when we don't, we can rest secure knowing that we're united to Jesus and are securely in God's loving and patient hands. In this season, would you accept God's invitation to trust in him more fully with your entire life? Maybe some of us are struggling with overwhelming feelings of guilt this morning. And though some of us have tender consciences and feel guilty all the time, even when we shouldn't, the feeling of guilt more times than not is an accurate feeling. Because before a holy and perfect God, we are all guilty and all fall short daily. And you know what? That deep inner belief that you're guilty, you can't get rid of it by being good. You can't get rid of it by running away and doing only what makes you feel good because you were made for God. And those feelings you're experiencing are his gracious reminders that you can't do it on your own. But this morning, rather than being weighed down by those feelings, would you accept the invitation to place all of your hope and trust in Jesus? You see, Jesus never did anything wrong. He kept God's law perfectly. He loved God's law and delighted to keep it. He never gave into temptation. And despite his perfect life, he was sent to the cross to die, not for his guilt, but for ours. And because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he alone could pay the price for our guilt, not just the guilt of one person, not just the guilt of a couple of people, but for all of his people at all times. Joseph's brothers knew they deserved a reckoning for what they believed happened to Joseph. But Jesus took on the flesh and shed his own blood to reckon with all of our sins. The things you were guilty of yesterday, the things you'll be guilty of this afternoon, the things you'll be guilty of tomorrow. Jesus paid for it all. And when you trust in him, you're truly forgiven forever. That's the deliverance from guilt we all need. And Jesus is the only one who can give it to us. And then lastly, who in your life have you had a falling out with? Who do you need to be reconciled with this Lord's day? Just like the famine couldn't prevent God from doing a work in Jacob's family, this pandemic is not an obstacle for God to do a similar work in yours. But how can you forgive, you say? How can, how can I seek reconciliation? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what's been done to me? Well, this morning, would you cast your eyes on Jesus? Would you see that when you hated God, Jesus said, send me, Dad. Send me and I'll do what they can't. Jesus looked at the people that were mocking him and spitting on him and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus took us selfish, lying, greedy, impatient, self-righteous people and loved us. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he reconciled us to God when we were his enemies. And if we've been shown that kind of forgiveness, how can we not seek it out with others in our lives? Let's be like Paul who writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus, which enables us to seek reconciliation with others. And when we fall short, and when we don't trust, and when we're guilty for something we did or didn't do, and when we struggle to forgive, know this morning that we have a Savior who's done it perfectly for us, so that we remain safe in our Father's arms now and forevermore.